Well, if you're here for the first time, you're a very special guest. Uh, we want to encourage you to please grab a Connect card, fill it out, drop it off at the welcome table, and that is a very simple way for us to get your information, to stay in connect, uh, connected to you. Um, we do have different announcements coming up, so you definitely want to fill that out. If you're joining us online, welcome. Go to our website, and if you look on our homepage, you'll see a link that says new here. Click on that, you'll see an e-connect card. And you can fill that out, and that's another way to stay connected. Today is also Communion Sunday, so please grab a communion cup. Don't forget to grab one, because we're going to take communion at the end of service. I believe uh, the welcomers are going around passing it out if you don't have it. Okay, a few announcements. Uh, the first one is membership class. We are having membership class, I believe, next Sunday. So we're very excited. We have this twice a year. If you are not a member, uh, please consider coming out. You are not obligated to sign anything, to become a member, to do anything. If you just want to come out and find out more about our church, it's a great way to do it. It's going to be right after service at the church loft. It's like two blocks away from here. You could just walk over. We're going to provide lunch. It's going to be a long day. It's going to be about five hours or so, but we're going to go through like a ton of stuff. By the end of it, you're going to know what we're all about. You're going to know the Promised Church and how to get involved and whether you're called here. So please consider coming out. Um, you can sign up by uh, clicking on the email. You should have gotten it already. If you don't get our emails, uh, fill out the Connect card and then we will send it to you. Talk to me too. If you're like, hey, I don't know anything about this. I want to come out. Just let me know and we'll sign you up. Okay, Cross Promise Dinner, that's another thing coming up in about two weeks. Uh, that's going to be on November 18th, 5 to 7. We've had this before, uh, but this is a great way to just connect. So it's just a way to meet people that you don't normally see at church. Maybe you're a student, you're gonna get you know, thrown into a group, not thrown into, but you're gonna be carefully placed with prayer into a group with married couples, maybe older people, you're gonna get to know people. Uh, you can even go to these groups with friends, so it's not like you're gonna be alone. Um, if you're an older person, maybe you'll be in a group with more students and young adults. But we just try to mix it up. It's called cross-promise, as in cross-section of the Promise Church. Uh, but it's a great way to get to know people. And then you're going to have games, a meal together. Uh, you're going to be meeting in people's homes. People are going to host. So again, if you haven't gotten our emails, fill out a Connect card. But you should uh, be able to sign up through our email. Okay, next announcement, Operation Christmas Child. Uh, this is well on its way. We're collecting boxes now. We've already passed them out. I believe we passed on more than 60 boxes, so praise God. Thank you guys for taking so many. Um, but bring them in, uh, filled. Um, brother Jason, who's helping to oversee it, him and his family, but he requested that we don't tape it shut, so just put a rubber band around it so that uh, the organization can actually make sure that the items are legit. So um, he asked for that, and you know what? I am so sorry. He made he made me make sure I make certain announcements. And um, I'm so sorry, Jason. Jason's out of town. <laughs> um, okay, here it is. Okay, so he said, never mind. I don't have it. I'm so sorry, Jason. <laughs> okay. Um, but he basically said, yeah, don't put rubber bands around it. He said, please uh, just bring it by November... The deadline to bring it is November 12th, last day to drop it off here, and then November 20th if you want to drop it off yourself at a drop center. But I think those are the main announcements. So 
I'll make sure we get the right announcements if there is more. But that is uh, for Operation Christmas Child. And then finally, the last one is Street Promise Fellowship. We already had our wonderful uh, outreach, our first one yesterday. It was a good time. We just go out into the streets, invite people to a Bible study and lunch. Uh, we had a small team go out and do that. Um, and we basically pray, we connect with them, give them resources, a gospel tract. But this is something that's going to be ongoing every month. If you're interested, please sign up. Again, you should have gotten the email. If you don't get our emails, fill out the Connect card. Uh, but the next one is going to be on, oh, I'm sorry, December 9th, 10.30 on Saturday a.m. And we do it right here in the downtown area. We gather right here near Dales. So please consider coming out to that. And then, oh yeah, one little add-on, but for those who are members of our church, you already know we are taking elder nominations. The deadline is coming up. Just want to remind you, it's going to be on 11-11, November 11th, uh, Saturday by midnight. Please submit your nominations. Amen? Okay. Praise God. Turn your Bibles, turn in your Bibles to 2 Peter 3, 1 through 10. 2 Peter 3, 1 through 10. You'll see the passage behind me on the screen. If you're joining us online, you'll see it on your screen at home. This is God's word, 2 Peter 3, 1 through 10. This is now the second letter that I'm writing to you, beloved. In both of them, I'm stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder that you should remember the predictions of the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord and Savior through your apostles. Knowing this, first of all, that scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing, following their own sinful desires. They will say, where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. For they deliberately overlooked this fact that the heavens existed long ago and the earth was formed out of water and through water by the word of God. And that by means of these, the world that then existed was deluged with water and perished. But by the same word, the heavens and earth that now exist are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. But do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years and a thousand years as one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance." But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. Let's pray. Father God, you are glorious, you are holy, and you are here, and we thank you, God, for your word once again. We thank you, Father God, for this journey that we have been on through Second Peter, and I pray that you would, Father, speak once again today in this word, through this word that you would open our hearts wide to receive it, that you would, Father God, glorify yourself through this word, that you would build up faith in this word. So Lord God, thank you so much. I pray that you would speak now, open our hearts. Thank you for everyone who has joined us here in person and online. We give you glory. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Well, for the last couple of weeks, we've been looking at Peter's answers to this pressing question in verse four. And the question is, where is the promise of Jesus' coming? Everything in the world has been going on, like it always has. So where is Jesus' second coming? So this was the big question. This was the troubling question for the early Christians. 
And this question began to spread through the early church like ink on a white t-shirt. But it began to really spread and false teachers came into these churches and began raising this question. They began sowing doubt. That's why it was spreading. And why did they do this, right? Why didn't they just leave them alone? What Peter said in verse 3 is because they were following their sinful desires. But what does that mean? What is the connection between following your own sinful desires and denying Jesus' second coming? Okay, why is that the reason why these false teachers came in and began to spread this lie about Jesus' second coming? Well, the connection is pretty straightforward. But these false teachers were men who claimed to be believers. They came in looking like everyone else. We're Christian, we're believers, but in fact, they didn't know God. They didn't really believe in the grace of God and what Jesus did for them. They didn't really believe that Jesus died for them, that he took God's punishment for them, that he rose from the dead for them, that he now offered forgiveness of sin and eternal life for them. They didn't believe in any of that, even though they said they were Christian. And because they didn't believe in the gospel, they weren't thankful to God. They weren't submitted joyfully to God and his will for their lives. So they professed to believe in God, but in reality, they were still living for themselves. They were doing whatever they wanted. So in other words, like Peter said, they were still following their own sinful desires. And by the way, that describes a lot of churchgoers today. A lot of churchgoers today. And brothers and sisters, this is what Peter's talking about. But for people who are following their own sinful desires and doing whatever they want, what's the last thing that they want to hear? The last thing that they want to hear is, a day is coming when you're going to be held accountable for what you're doing. Okay, nobody wants to hear that who's just doing whatever they want, living in their own way for their own goals. Okay, they don't want to hear that your selfish, godless party is coming to an end. Okay, nobody wants to hear that. Even if that party is being religious and going to church, but on your own terms, for your own ends. That's coming to an end. They don't want to hear that. Even if your party is raising kids to love the world, setting them up for success, but never faith in God, that never just crosses your mind that that's what they should really get, then that party is coming to an end or working hard to have a comfortable, fulfilling life, but then just adding a little bit of God on the side as insurance, okay, that party's coming to an end. Okay, nobody who's living like that wants to hear that. That Jesus is coming back to bring all of it to an end. And when he comes back, he's going to gather true believers to himself, bring them into the true joy of his wedding banquet, and everybody else, he's going to cast away into utter darkness, into judgment. Again, nobody who is doing whatever they want, living their own way, following their own sinful desires, wants to hear that. You know what it's like? It's kind of like teenagers who throw a party while the parents are away. So here they are, just making a massive mess of the house, drinking, fornicating, breaking things. And the most unpopular thing you can say to that crowd is, hey, 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 everybody, your parents are coming back soon, and they're going to bring a stop to all of this. They're going to hold you guys accountable for all of this. People in that party are going to hate that message. They will reject it. They're going to question it. They're going to say all kinds of things to mock it. This is not hard to understand. And this is what the false teachers were doing in the early churches. 
there were men who were following their own sinful desires and they questioned, where is the promise of Jesus coming? What are you talking about? That he's going to come one day to judge the living and the dead. Okay, I'm just busy doing my own thing. Yeah, I'm living my life. I have goals to pursue. Yeah, I got things to take care of. There are things that I'm going after, and I don't think Jesus is coming back. And by the way, I don't think you should believe that either. So this is what was happening. And so you can see this question, where is Jesus' second coming? This is more than a theological issue. This is what I've been trying to say every Sunday. But this is not just some, you know, random topic on eschatology, but this is really a heart issue. But this is a cry of a rebellious heart towards God. This question, it comes from a heart that just wants to do whatever it wants and never be held accountable. That's the cry in that kind of heart. So this question, where is Jesus' second coming, is not just for people who are really into the end times. I hope you guys aren't checking out on Sunday because you're like, wow, this is a lot on the end times and Jesus' second coming. But it's not just for people like that. But this question is really for everyone who has an unbelieving, rebellious heart towards God. Okay, that question, where is Jesus coming, is inside every unbelieving, rebellious heart on the earth, including people in the church. See, every unbelieving, rebellious heart on the earth either rejects, denies, or ignores Jesus' second coming, including people in the church. And this is why I call Jesus' second coming the greatest prophecy in the Bible that is the most rejected today. Sorry, I've been kind of having a cold lately, so you're kind of hearing it now. But this is why I've been calling it the greatest prophecy that is rejected today. So this isn't just a theological issue, but it is a heart issue. And it's only people who have a new heart through repentance and faith in Christ, who have a regenerating work of the Holy Spirit in their hearts, is only these people who are going to cry out, Maranatha. Okay, do you guys remember what Maranatha means? It means the Lord is coming. Okay, only people with a regenerated, brand new heart through faith in Christ will cry out, Maranatha. So brothers and sisters, this is no, no small issue that pe- uh, Peter was tackling in this letter, but it really gets to the core of whether you really believe in God or not whether you have submission to God in his word or not in your heart. So even as we're looking at these verses, even today, I want to encourage you, ask yourself, what is in my heart? When you look at your heart, what is there? Do you see this doubting question? Where is Jesus coming? What are you talking about? Definitely not in my lifetime or if ever. Or do you see in your heart this cry of faith, Maranatha? Amen? Jesus is coming. So what do you have in your heart? Okay, that's really the issue as we're going through these verses. And if you look in your heart, and what you see there is doubt in Jesus' second coming, and let's be honest, a lot of Christians have doubt. We're not sure about this. And one of the biggest ways we doubt is we just simply ignore it. But if you see doubt in Jesus' second coming, then Peter has some words for you. Gentle words, encouraging words. But he is a shepherd who wanted to build up faith in believers. And he wants to build up your faith. So here in these verses, you see four answers to that question. They're really four arguments for Jesus' second coming. And we know Peter was talking to true believers in these verses because twice Peter said, Beloved, 
So he wasn't really addressing the false teachers. He was now talking to believers. He said beloved in verse 1. He said it again in verse 8. And so Peter is talking to the church, and he was offering the beloved these arguments. Two, that even believers can have unbelief seep into their hearts and begin to doubt things that God promised. They can, be, they can begin to live as if Jesus isn't coming back. Peter knew that. So he began to engage their minds in order to strengthen their faith. Okay, this is what's going on in these verses. And I want you to notice, when Peter was addressing the believers who had doubt, he didn't just say, hey, believe. You need to just believe. You know, I've heard about so many Christians who lost their faith or almost lost their faith because they had genuine questions. They went to their pastors, and what they heard is, hey, you got to just believe. Just believe. Well, notice, Peter didn't do that here, but he gave them reasons to believe. In fact, that's what he said in his previous letter, in 1 Peter 3. But he said, if anybody has questions, be ready to answer them. To give them reasons for the hope that is in you. In you. And so Peter is doing that here. He is giving reasons for the hope that was in him. So true biblical faith is never against reason. It's served and supported by reason. And so here in these verses, Peter is giving four answers, four reasons. I call them arguments for Jesus' second coming. And the first two we already saw last week, so we're not going to go through them again. If you missed it, then you can go back onto our website. You can find the message there. But we already saw the first two arguments. The first one was God's word of prophecy, the miracle of the Bible. And you see that in verses 1 and 2. And then the second argument was God's acts in creation, which is in verses 5 through 7. But these are the first two arguments that Peter gave for why Jesus is going to come back. And today what I want to do is I want to look at arguments 3 and 4. I want to look at the rest of these arguments. So the third and fourth arguments are found in verses 8 through 9. And then you see Peter's final assurance that the day of the Lord is coming in verse 10. That's kind of how he wraps up this section. So you see two more arguments for Jesus' second coming, number three and four, and then you get this final assurance. Yes, the day of the Lord is coming in verse 10. So we're going to look at that. Okay, so Peter's third argument for Jesus' second coming. Okay, this is what we see in verse 8. Peter's third argument. And it is God's reality of time. God's reality of time. So look at verse 8. Peter said, but do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years and a thousand years as one day. So this is a fascinating verse. And we can quickly get lost here talking about different theories on time. I've heard messages like that. I've heard messages where they start talking about Einstein's theory of relativity, which says that moving clocks run slower, especially as it approaches the speed of light. So people can get into all kinds of things. But that is not what Peter is talking about here. Amen? But he was not making a philosophical statement on time in this verse. But I believe Peter was simply just saying two things, two very important things. First, Peter was saying God's concept of time is not like ours. Is different. His understanding, his reality of time is very different from ours. Because for us, a day is like what? A day is a day. <laughs> a day is a day. 
Now sure, our experience of each day passing by can feel different. Some days feel shorter, some days feel longer. Even between people, we can have different experiences. For example, for me, Mondays feel very short because it's my day off. For most of you, Mondays probably feel very long because it's your first day at work. So objectively, or subjectively, it can feel different. But objectively, a day is still a day, right? For all of us, a day is a day. A thousand years is a thousand years. But Peter says, but for God, his reality of time is completely different from ours. It is so utterly different that even a day can be like a thousand years, and a thousand years can be like a day. And so for example, how is it different? Well, for example, from the Bible, we know that God in some sense exists outside of time. He's not contained within time, but he exists outside of time. And we know this because in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, Genesis 1.1. So God created the universe, and we know that space-time is part of this universe. So we know that when God created the universe, he actually created space-time, or let's just say time for the sake of this discussion. But God created time when he created the universe. And if God created time itself, then before he created it, he existed outside of time. He existed without time. In other words, he existed in some sort of a timeless state. And the Bible seems to say this in several places. For example, Psalm 90 verse 2. It says, before the mountains were brought forth or ever you had formed the earth and the world from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. See, before you created anything, the psalmist says, God, you are from everlasting to everlasting, eternity past, eternity future. So God existed before the universe and time were even created. He's timeless. He exists in some sort of a timeless state. The Bible also says even now God exists in some sort of timeless state. Now theologians debate that. I think William Lake Craig says that once God created the universe, now he exists only in time. I don't agree with that. But I believe the Bible says even God exists in some sort of timeless state now. Because if you go back to Psalm 90 and just read a couple more verses, verse 4, it says, For a thousand years in your sight are but as yesterday, when it is past or as a watch in the night. This, by the way, is where Peter probably got the inspiration for his own verse when he said, with the Lord, one day is a thousand years and a thousand years as one day. So the Bible is just repeating itself. But even now, God seems to exist in some sort of a timeless state right now as we speak. In fact, Jesus himself seemed to imply this about himself in one of the most breathtaking verses in the Bible. But in John 8, he's having this long argument with the Pharisees, debating, going back and forth, and then it just kind of climaxes in verse 58 when he says, look, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. <gasps> Blasphemy. They all knew what he meant. Before Abraham was, I am. So even there, Jesus seemed to be claiming some sort of a timeless existence even though here he is in this human form in time. So I'm not trying to make some sort of philosophical arguments here about God in time. All I'm trying to do is simply show you from the Bible that in some sense, God exists outside of our reality of time. Like Peter was saying, God's reality of time is different from ours. 
And theologians over the years have really tried to grapple with this and try to understand this in different ways. I like this one analogy that theologians use often, but they talk about looking down on a procession or parade from a hot air balloon. But imagine on Thanksgiving Day parade, it's coming up, but imagine you're high up on a, you know, in the sky in a hot air balloon and then you're looking down on that parade. What are you gonna see? Well, you're gonna see all these floats and participants in the parade moving slowly. And because of your vantage point, you're gonna see the very end of the parade all the way to the very beginning of the parade. Well, that parade are like all the events of the universe moving forward in time. All the floats and participants are like all the various people and events throughout the universe moving forward in time. So we are a part of this parade, but not God. God is outside of the parade. He's in the hot air balloon. And he's looking down on it. And he's able to see the very back of the parade all the way to the very front of the parade all in one view. That's how God sees all of time in universe. The analogy I like to use is a comic strip. Because I like comics and I don't really watch parades. But, well, I don't really like comics that much. But, but I like comic strips as an analogy. But when you look at a comic strip, you see frames, right? And then you see characters within those frames. And they're trapped within each frame. They're trapped. They can't break out of these frames. And as the comic story progresses, they just move from frame to frame. And they're always trapped within those frames. In other words, they're trapped within time. We're like that. That is an example of us and time. We're trapped within time. We can only move forward in time in one direction, moment by moment, kind of like frame by frame. But God, he's not like that. He is the author of the comic strip. So he's above it. And even though we're within it, trapped within these frames of time, God just sees all of it all at once. He sees the very first frame all the way to the very last frame, all in one view. So you get the point. God is outside of time. He is timeless. And there's a lot more we can say about that, but we need to move on because we don't have time. I mean it. <laughs> it's true. We don't have time. So God is outside of time and timeless, but that's not all. The Bible also says God can interact with his creation within time. So although God is timeless outside of time, he can interact within time. So in another sense, he is both outside of time and in time, within time. You see that throughout scripture, Galatians 4.4. 4. It says, but when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son. Do you see that? God interacts with time. He broke into our world and into time, and he sent forth his son, born of woman, born under the law. And right there, God inserting himself into time at Jesus' birth, this has happened all throughout redemptive history, not just once, but all throughout. So for example, God appeared to Abraham when Abraham was around 70 years old. God broke into time, into Abraham's life, right around when he was 70, and he called him. God also led the Israelites through the wilderness for 40 years. When you're going through something for 40 years, or leading somebody through something for 40 years, you're in time. God broke into time. After the Israelites were in captivity for exactly 70 years, God brought them out of Babylon. That's another example. And then, of course, when the fullness of time came, God sent forth his son. Do you see that? God not only is outside of time, but he is constantly interacting in time, within time. 
so that he could bring about his redemptive purpose. So all of that shows a timeless God who can also insert himself into time in order to interact with and redeem the world. So this is an amazing picture. It's all in scripture. So what does all of this mean? Okay, how does this connect with the second coming? Well, what this means is because God is outside of time and timeless, and yet he can insert himself into time at any point he wants, I love this, but God is ultimately the Lord over time. And I believe this is Peter's second point. He's not just saying that God has a different relationship with time, but in that verse, when he said, with the Lord one day is a thousand years and a thousand years is one day, he is actually claiming that God is the Lord over time. He is Lord over time. So he is not at the mercy of time like we are. What I mean is he's not driven along by the powerful waves of time, kind of like a sailboat in a hurricane where he has no say in this, but time is just driving him along. Okay, that's actually us. We don't have any control over time. Amen? Whether we like it or not, tomorrow is coming. And then once tomorrow is here, tomorrow has become the present. And then soon, like a signpost whizzing by on the freeway, the present turns into the past. Okay, we have no choice in that. That's just going to happen every single day. So we are all stuck on this conveyor belt of time moving in one direction. Time always goes in one direction. People call it the arrow of time. It's always going forward. So we never grow younger, we only get older. We never go back in time, we only go forward in time. It's, it's just stuck. We are on this conveyor belt of time, but not God. For God, time is like a lump of clay in his hands. You think about this. This will... This will expand your understanding of who God is. But for God, time is like a lump of clay in his hands. He can do whatever he wants with it. Theologian John Frame said, God looks at time as his tool in accomplishing his purposes. See, we're completely at the mercy of time. In fact, we feel like victims of time, don't we? Especially for you who are older, I'm, I'm there. But we feel like victims of time. We can't do anything about it. But for God, he's like, no. It's just like a lump of clay in my hand. I can shape it. I can mold it. I can do whatever I want with it. I will use it. And so God looks at time as his tool in accomplishing his purposes. It's kind of like the way you would look at a pencil on a desk. When you look at a pencil on a desk, you're not threatened by that. You don't feel victimized by that. You look at that pencil and you go, oh yeah, it's a pencil. You'll pick it up. You'll hold it in your hands. You'll manipulate it. You'll use it to do whatever you want with it. Well, when God looks at time, that's the way he sees it. It's like a pencil in his hand. It's just a tool. And he will use it to accomplish whatever purpose he wants. At exactly the time he wants, in the way he wants, he's the Lord over time. I don't know about you, but that's breathtaking. I mean, it's one thing to be the Lord over winds and waves, right? Nature is a whole other thing to be the Lord over time. Okay, that, that should just blow your mind. That this is the God that we worship. But he is the Lord over time. And so none of us who know God should ever worry about growing older. Okay, you should not sit there worrying about missed opportunities because now you're in your 30s or now you're in your 40s. Nobody who knows the Lord should feel discouraged that time is slipping through their hands. You know, as I get older and I'm looking at 
the mirror and I'm like, wow, I never had bags under my eyes ever. And my kids are now saying, Roy, they don't say, they don't say Roy, they say dad. <laughs> I'm like, what? <laughs> I'd be like, Psh. it's like, I'm dad to you. But they're like, dad, you have bags under your eyes. I'm like, I do, oh yeah, yeah. My daughter is even finding hair coming out of my ears. That's TMI, but, but I'm growing older and I'm looking at the things that I'm doing and I feel like time is slipping through my hands. I remember when I was right around 30 years old, I remember talking to a lot of friends who were around the same age and people were saying things like, ah, oh, I'm getting older. And a lot of them were single and they were saying, oh, I wonder when I'm gonna get married, right? Oh, I wonder when I'm gonna really get settled into my career. When am I gonna really begin to reach these goals I have? When am I gonna finally serve God the way I should? And if I'm honest, I was asking the same questions. But I remember people were worried about all these things. Well, if you understand who the Lord is that you follow, the Lord that you worship, for him, time is just a lump of clay. And it's not just time in general, but the time that he holds in his hands is your time. He holds your time in his hands. So for people who are concerned about time and worried about time slipping through their hands and being at the mercy of time, feeling like a victim of time, they don't understand who the Lord is. They don't understand how the Lord sees time his relationship with time. But Psalm 103, verse 14 says, God remembers that we are dust and that our days are like grass. Okay, God knows. Okay, God knows that we're stuck in that comma strip, that we're just going from frame to frame, that we're utterly victims of time, at the mercy of time, like a sailboat in a hurricane. He knows that. He knows we have no control. So God remembers. And God will make sure that our days are not swept away by time. Amen? God will make sure it doesn't matter. God called Abraham when he was 70 years old and he fulfilled the great purpose. He called Moses when he was 80 years old and he fulfilled God's great purpose in his life. So God will make sure that our days are not swept away by time. I don't care how old you are. And if that God that has that much power, he has that much sovereign control over time, when that God now says, I am going to come back, and it's taken a while, Peter says, he is not slow in keeping his promise to return. Okay, what is 2,000 years to God? It's nothing. Again, it's just a lump of clay in his hands. It's nothing to God. He will come exactly at the time that he appointed, and God never missed an appointment. Amen? He will never miss an appointment. And so this is Peter's argument. If you can just understand who God is, that his relationship with time is not like yours, in fact, he is the Lord over time, then you're going to know he's coming back exactly at the time he chooses. And so that's his third argument. And then here's his fourth argument. His fourth argument. It is God's desire for repentance. His desire for repentance. So look at verse 9. Okay, Peter, he's just, just marching through these arguments. He says, The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. So here Peter is pointing out the obvious fact that once Jesus returns, the end of this present age will come. Finito. It is done. And at that day, on that day, the gospel will no longer be preached. The offer of salvation will no longer go out. And the chance to receive Christ as Savior and Lord will be gone. It will come to an end. And because that day is so irreversible, so final, God is delaying that day from coming. Why? 
because he wants the full number of people who will be saved to be saved. Everyone who will be saved, he wants to be saved. But what is that full number of people who will be saved? So as you read verse 9, you should be asking, okay, who's all? Who is Peter talking about? Who, what is this number of people who are going to be saved? Because Peter said, God does not wish that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. Some Bible scholars say, oh, that all just means all the believers he was writing to, all the people in the church. But if I'm honest, I don't think that's what Peter's talking about. I think he just really means all people, all people in the world throughout history, just all people. God desires all people to be saved. But then what does that mean? Does that mean God is delaying his coming so that every single person in the world can be saved? Is that what Peter's saying? That's why God's waiting so that every single person in the world will be saved. Well, some people look at that and go, yeah, this is proof. This verse proves it. God will eventually save everyone. In fact, God repeated this, 1 Timothy 2.4. Similarly, God wants all men to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. See? The New Testament says it more than once. God will eventually save everyone. And that's why he's waiting. He's waiting for all to be saved. And if that's what you believe, then there is a name for that. It's called universalism. Universalism. And that is not orthodox Christian belief. The church throughout history has not accepted that, but that is called universalism. I remember many years ago when I was doing college ministry, I had a partner in college ministry, and she really wrestled with this issue because she had a sister who didn't know God, she wasn't a believer, and she really wanted universalism to be true. And she started taking some seminary courses, and, and she heard something about it, and she really wrestled with it. And I totally understood her because she just simply wanted her sister to be saved badly. And so she thought, you know, maybe this is what the Bible teaches, that everyone's going to be saved one day. And I can understand that because I have some family members too who don't know the Lord. And I want them to get saved badly. But is this what Peter is talking about? Is this the encouragement that he's giving, that everyone's going to be saved one day? I don't believe it is. I don't believe that Peter is saying that God desires all to be saved and come to repentance I don't think he's saying that everyone's going to be saved one day. He's not saying that God is delaying Jesus' second coming because of universalism. And here's why I don't think this is what Peter is saying. That can't be what Peter is saying. Because that would contradict what Peter said all throughout the letter earlier. Because Peter repeatedly said earlier in this letter the exact opposite. So for example, this won't be on the screen. But he said in 2 Peter 2.3, the condemnation of the false teachers is not idle and their destruction is not asleep. They will be judged. They will be judged. 2 Peter 2.6, God turned Sodom and Gomorrah into ashes, making them an example of what is going to happen to the ungodly. I'm just quoting that literally. What is going to happen, not what might happen or if they don't repent. What is going to happen to the ungodly? Exactly what happened to Sodom and Gomorrah. 2 Peter 2.9, the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials and to keep the unrighteous under punishment until the day of judgment. And there are more verses like that. Peter repeatedly said this truth of the judgment of God coming upon the ungodly. And those verses, brothers and sisters, don't sound like everyone's going to get saved. It does not sound like that. 
To the contrary, it sounds like there is certain judgment coming for the unrighteous. Anyone who doesn't know Christ has repented and put their faith in Christ, judgment is coming. And Jesus made this clearer than anyone. He said in Matthew 7, 13 through 14, for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction and those who enter by it are many. The majority of the world are on the path of destruction, but the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life and those who find it are few. Why is the gate narrow? Why is it hard to find? Because the gate is one person, Jesus Christ. There's only one figure in all of history that leads to eternal life, just Jesus, him and him alone. And how many people truly find him in the way that brings salvation? Not many. So then how can God desire something which is all people being saved? We just read that. How can God desire something, the salvation of all people, but in the end, this isn't gonna happen? How is that possible? Well, theologians have wrestled with this and they found in scripture two wills of God. And we don't have time today. This isn't the point of today's message. And we can't go through all the verses, but there are several different verses in Scripture that point to the two wills of God. There are different names for it, but I like calling it the desired will of God and the decreed will of God. There is a desired will of God and a decreed will of God. In other words, there are some things that God wants, but they don't necessarily come to pass. But there are other things God has decreed will happen. It is his decreed will, and they will happen. They will absolutely come to pass. And so there are two different wills. Some things he desires, they're not going to happen. Other things that he didn't necessarily say he desires, they will happen. And some people hear that, and they go, ridiculous. That's the stupidest thing I've ever heard. And yet, and put them under the knife. And they underwent cochlear surgery, cochlear implant surgery. And that caused them to have significant pain for days and days. In fact, the first night when we brought them home, they couldn't even sleep in their regular bed because they were in so much pain. I, I held them and they slept in my, on my chest the whole night. The whole night I, I was on the couch holding them. Well, one after the other. <laughs> but they were in significant pain. They don't remember it. They were babies. But we inflicted a lot of pain on them. And so I desire that they would never experience pain, and yet there was a greater will that caused a lot of pain in them. And so God, in the same way, will desire one thing, that all people will be saved. But for whatever reason, for his own sovereign purpose that we don't understand, he hasn't decreed that. And we know that because the Bible talks about it everywhere. Most people aren't going to be saved. Only the few will be saved. God has decreed it. Ephesians 1, he has predestined some to receive eternal life and others not. It seems to be a passing over of others, but some he does select for salvation. And so in the same way, God will desire one thing, but will ultimately decree another thing for his purposes. In case you're not convinced, let me just give one example. There are many examples of God's two different wills in the Bible, but let me just give one example. But God clearly desires that people do not commit murder. Amen? He does, not, he does not want people to murder each other. He says that in the sixth commandment, in the 10 commandments, you shall not murder. Don't kill each other. He doesn't want that. And in fact, what's happening right now in the Middle East is grieving God's heart, I believe. He does not want murder. And yet it says in Acts 2.23, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. 
do you see that? The Bible is a weird, weird book. But it's trying to describe in just human language the reality of God who lives outside of time, who's the Lord of our time, who sees our will and who will do whatever he pleases. But it says here, Jesus was delivered up and killed by lawless men, but who did it? According to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, God did it. So God delivered up Jesus to be murdered by lawless men, even though he desires that people don't kill each other. God never wants people to murder one another, and yet he decreed the murder of his own son. Why? Because there was a greater decree. There was a greater desire he had, which is our redemption. So we can't go deeper into this. There are many other passages that show the two different wills of God. But Peter's argument here for Jesus' second coming is not universalism. It can't be, because he would be contradicting himself earlier in his own letter in other parts of the Bible. Then what was his argument? Okay, what, what is Peter saying here then? It's simply this. God's heart is that all people would be saved. That is his desired will. Even though it might not be his decreed will, that's what he desires genuinely. And I'm not going to minimize that. I think it's all people. I don't think, just think it's the people in the early church. I, I believe it's all people of all time. He desires everyone to be saved. But we know from scripture, not everyone will be saved though as Peter himself made clear. Not everyone will be saved. And yet God still desires that, even though he hasn't decreed it. And so this is what Peter is saying. But regardless, God is patiently waiting for everyone who actually will be saved to be saved before he returns. Okay, this is a very, very important point, so don't miss this. Peter is saying God desires all to be saved, even though that is not his decreed will. But what he's saying is, and yet God is patiently waiting for everyone who actually will be saved by his decree to be saved before he returns. So you know what this means, brothers and sisters? This means not, every, not one person who will be saved will fall through the cracks on the day of Jesus' return. You will have zero people falling through the cracks. In other words, on the day Jesus returns, nobody who is meant to be saved will be caught off guard, just living their lives unsaved and lost in sin. No one's going to be like that. Everyone whose name was written in the book of life before the foundation of the world, as the Bible says, more than once. God has a book that existed before the foundation of the world and had a list of names, and these are all the people that God already knew outside of time who were going to be saved. Everyone whose name was written in the book of life before the foundation of the world will be saved and waiting for Jesus' return on the day he comes back. Even if they were saved in the last final moments during the tribulation. Even if they were saved in the moment that Jesus comes back, such as the remnant of Israel. It says in the Bible, like in Zechariah, that literally as Jesus is returning, they're going to become saved. They're going to see the one whom was pierced on their behalf. They will be saved as they see Jesus returning. But the point is, nobody who will be saved will fall through the cracks who God knew will be saved when Jesus returns. And the sovereign Lord over time itself will make sure of this. So then, what about my family member? Okay, Roy, that's great, but what about my friend who doesn't know Christ? Well, my encouragement is pray for them. 
Okay, pray that God will save them. Why? Because we read earlier, God's heart is that all people will be saved. And we don't know who God has decreed for salvation or not. We don't know that. But God's heart is that all will be saved. And the very fact that you have that burden on your heart to pray for salvation for your family member or friend very likely could mean that God is going to save them. So pray for them. Continue to pray that God would save them. And be confident that if they were meant to be saved, on the day that God returns, they're not going to be caught off guard. They're not going to be suddenly, oh my gosh, God's here, I'm not saved yet. No, that will never happen. But God is patient. He he is waiting until the full number of everyone who will be saved, every name that's been written in the book of life will be saved before he returns. Amen? So let that be an encouragement to you, even as you might wrestle with it. And then finally, we're just going to close with this. But Peter finally closes this section with, with an assurance of the coming of the day of the Lord. An assurance of the coming of the day of the Lord. So here, Peter confidently closes this section with these words based on the arguments he just gave. Based on the arguments that we just looked at, those four arguments, he says this in verse 10. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief. So when a thief breaks into a house, is that unexpected? Yeah, that's sudden, it's unexpected. But that's only for those who are not saved when Jesus comes back, who will never be saved. Those are the ones who will be caught off guard, who have rejected Jesus, continue to, right up until the moment he comes back. They will be caught off guard. He will come like a thief. And then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved. There the word heaven is talking about the visible, physical universe. We're not talking about some ethereal heaven up there. The actual physical, visible universe will be melted down in its elements. The elements will be melted down. But it's not going to be destroyed. And here's why. Look at verse 10, the latter part. And the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. So why is God going to melt down the heavens, the physical, visible universe? Not to destroy it, but to purge it. And ultimately to renew it. It says here, the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. You know, I remember many years ago when Jill and I first moved to Riverside, my goodness, this was already like 14 years ago, I think, but a long time ago, shortly after we moved here, there was a big fire. A lot of fires were happening all around us, so everywhere we drove around, there was all these burnt areas all around us, even spreading into Orange County. And so oftentimes, we would be driving on the freeway seeing all these massively burnt areas, and everything that was dead and rotten underneath the trees and the shrubs in those areas, they were exposed. They were exposed. And so that's what fire does. Whatever is underneath, whatever is hidden, it exposes all of it because everything on the surface is burned away. And yet, all those areas that were burned all around us, Jill and I, to our joy, because we're like, what kind of place is this, right? (laughs) You know, Riverside. But then shortly after, it began to bloom. All these areas begin to grow grass and flowers, and it, began, it, it sort of turned nice, you know, as nice as Riverside can get, but, but it turned sort of nice. <laughs> hey, it's not Seattle, right? <laughs> or Hawaii. But it turned sort of nice again. So praise God. I love Riverside. I, I really do. I love Riverside. 
I really do. But things begin to grow back, amen? And so we're coming to a close, but ultimately, this is what Peter is saying. He's not saying everything when he comes back is going to be blown up, melted down, the end. But no, he ends with a hopeful note. And we know that because when you read a little further, this is the next section next week or next time. Verse 13, there will be a new heaven and a new earth. Why is he melting things down and burning things over? So that there will be new life. He will purge to renew. And so this is a very hopeful note. And so if you end with just destruction and melting down of the physical universe, then you are missing Peter's message. But he is saying there will be a death of creation. Why? So there, there will be a resurrection of creation. And I love what Peter says here, but he says it will be the day of the Lord that will bring it. Who's the Lord? Jesus. Who's going to do this? Jesus will do it. He is the one who will usher in the death of creation in order to bring the resurrection of creation. And by the way, that can only happen because he himself died and physically resurrected. He physically died and then he physically resurrected. And because of his physical death and resurrection, now all of us who have faith in him, we will physically die and physically resurrect. But the gospel doesn't end there. But it actually expands it to the entire universe and says because of Jesus' death and resurrection, now creation itself will physically die and physically resurrect. Brothers and sisters, if you don't like this world, if you don't like the way the world's headed, then this is your only hope. This is your great hope. One day, and we're going to talk more about this in the next section, you are not going to be in some spirit ethereal world with wings in heaven playing a harp. Okay, that is a demonic picture of heaven because it's not true. That might be a lie from the enemy himself but we are going to be walking in physical bodies in a physical new earth and a physical new heaven. And there's going to be a continuation, a continuum. Maybe you can go back and forth. I don't know. But you will be living for all eternity with the Lord in a physical new earth, in physical new bodies. And this is what we're groaning. This is what we're waiting for. So it says in Romans 8.21, the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to decay and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. And so Peter says, wait for Jesus' coming. It's coming. Here are the arguments. Here's the final assurance. He's coming back. Amen? Okay, let's bow. Let's bow in prayer. Thank you, Lord Jesus. We thank you so much, Father. We thank you for your word. Your word is true. Thank you, Lord Jesus. I realize that some of the things we talked about, we're gonna have to wrestle with. And, and so in no way would I judge you if you leave today going, oh, I don't know about all this. These are some interesting things. These are some difficult things I need to think through. I encourage you, wrestle with the word of God. See if in fact this is what God says. But I want to encourage you. If you will take the time to really understand what God says, then there is glory. There is glorious truth that will transform. 
how you see God, how you see yourself, how you see this world. God will transform you. There is glory. So I want to encourage you, don't just reject things out of hand. I would never just share something with you that I don't think the Word of God is saying that's just rejectable, something that's easily dismissed. But wrestle with these things. There's great hope. There's great hope that you will find. So Lord God, I pray for that, Lord, right now, that you would bring great hope So let's just come before the Lord right now. Let's ask God, God, please.